This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Today's scripture comes from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 18 which can be found on page 1019 in the Pew Bibles around you. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them, of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus because of his work and in him and in him alone. This morning I ask as we open your word and we come to the end of 2 Peter together, would you fill us with the spirit of revelation? God, would you enlighten the eyes of our understanding that we would see Christ, we would see him and know him, God, that we would be filled with his grace, and we would grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, would you um, meet here with us? Let our ears be attentive to your word. God, let us... Let our hearts be open to your word. Let us be soft in our hearts. Let the soil of our hearts be receptive to the implanting of the word that we might bear fruit in righteousness. God, would you pour out your grace. This morning we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we come to our 
conclusion in the letter of Second Peter. And this week, in some ways, is dovetailed right out of where we were last week. So I'm just going to jump straight into the text and bring us up to speed as to where we are contextually. Uh, look with me at the bottom of page one of your notes at Roman numeral two. You guys are going to get really excited. Sometimes it takes me 25 minutes to make it through the first page. It's going to take me two. I'll get stopped somewhere later. So look at letter A. At the beginning of chapter three, what we saw last week is Peter has been speaking to the church about the reality of these false teachers that had made their way in and among them. They had begun to uh, uh, sow seeds of false teaching among the church that had tempted to separate them from the true and stable foundation that is Christ Jesus. And these false teachers were promoting a lifestyle of indulgence and sensuality and were tempting the believers to lose their course in pursuing the knowledge of God, pursuing faithfulness to Jesus. And he had spent two chapters seeking to strengthen the church up against this false teaching, first by demonstrating this is who you are in Christ. Remember that you have been given faith as a gift to be received, and because you've been given this, take every effort to supplement to that faith obedience, obedience to the Lord, that you might be strengthened in that. Then in chapter two, he spent a lot of time looking at what the false teachers were like, their characteristics, what marked some of their teaching, and then what was the end result if the church were to buy into this kind of false teaching. But then at the beginning of chapter three, he's turned to demonstrate that the false teachers had begun to scoff at the reality of Jesus's return, right? Look with me at 2 Peter 3, verse uh, 2. I want you to remember some things, brothers and sisters, is what he's saying. Remember the predictions of the prophets and the commandment that the Lord Jesus gave you. Knowing something, I want you to be, I want you to remember and be aware of something that you already were to know. I'm just reminding you of something. That first of all, there will be scoffers that come in the last days mocking and scoffing, following their sinful desires, asking this rhetorical question against God and his purposes, where is the promise of his coming? Right, this they use to prop up their sinful behavior and their sinful desires. Right, Peter shows that the false teachers would begin to scoff at the reality of Christ's return. These false teachers, Peter tells us, they misunderstood the reality in the delay of Christ's coming as evidence that he wouldn't return, right? So when Jesus was teaching his disciples and when he would teach of his second coming, he would say things like, behold, I'm coming quickly, soon, right? And soon has been 2,000 years at this point, but even in the early church, after a couple decades, this spirit had begun to be sown into the church among false teachers of maybe he's not actually coming back. 
Where is the promise of his coming? As a mocking and a scoffing at the certainty of the teaching of the Lord, right? They took this delay that seemed to, uh, to define the time between Christ's ascension and the time when he would return, and they distorted it as evidence that he wasn't, in fact, going to return. And they actually really liked this because if Jesus isn't coming back, then nobody ever gets judged. And that's what they wanted, right? We see that. Look here again. I, we highlighted this last week, but look at verse three one more time. Know this, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So Peter, from the jump, wants you to recognize and wants us to be strengthened in the reality that false teaching is not actually an intellectual endeavor. It's not an intellectual problem. It is a moral problem, right? They take these teachings and they use them to prop up what they already wanted to do in their own hearts, which was follow in their sensual, indulgent passions, rejecting the authority of God so they could live the way they wanted. This teaching was then how the false teachers justified and promoted their sinful lifestyle. Look at letter B. So to answer the presence of the scoffers uh, that mocked the coming of the Lord Jesus, Peter gave two answers for the people of God to strengthen us in the face of such scoffing. First, Peter demonstrates that these teachers were overlooking something deliberately. They closed their eyes to it. They seared their own conscience related to something that was objective before them. Although they claimed that God would not intervene because nothing seemed to ever change, right? They're going, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers died, nothing's ever changed, meaning nothing's ever going to change. Things just keep going the way they are, right? In our day, it sounds a lot like, well, hasn't every generation of Christians believed they were the last one? Hasn't every generation of Christians believed things were just getting worse than they were in the generation before? And it's this scoffing, mocking spirit intended to get believers to draw back on the certainty that Jesus is coming again. But they're overlooking this historical fact. They're they're overlooking the reality that God has created things, all things. They're overlooking the fact that he has judged in the past with the flood, which gives evidence that he will once again come with fire, Peter says. Look at the top of page two. So secondly, Peter then encourages the church to remember a theological reality, right? There's this historical fact that the false teachers are deliberately overlooking, they're blinding themselves to, but Peter says, not only do I want you to look at this historical fact that God uh, has demonstrated his power over creation, both through creating itself and through the flood, I also want you to rightly assess the theological reality of any delay that happens in the coming of the Lord. Right, The church is to rightly understand this delay in Christ's coming. We're not to, like the false teachers, view this as evidence that God doesn't care or that God will not intervene. 
Rather, we are rightly to understand that this delay demonstrates something of the very character of God. Namely, that he is patient and long-suffering towards sinful humanity in order that he might give time for repentance. Right? We looked at that quite a bit last week, but what Peter wants the church to remember is don't get caught up in believing that because there is a delay, it means that God doesn't care or that he's not going to intervene or that he's just willing to like uh, brush things off to the side. What it actually does is gives evidence in uh, real time and space to what God has always declared to be true about himself. If you go all the way back to Exodus 34, when Moses asked God to show him his glory, God shows up to Moses and says, I'm going to tell you what I'm like. Do you want to know what my glory is? I'm going to tell you what my character is like. And the first thing he tells him is that he's merciful, abounding in loving kindness, and slow to anger. So Peter wants you and I to look at the delay and not go, oh, this is evidence that Jesus is not coming and that he'll never fulfill his purposes. We're to look at the evidence and see with the eyes of faith what God has always told us about himself. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. He has patience in order that those who run headlong away from him might have time to repent. So that brings us to where we are in the text now. Look at letter C. We're going to be at verse 10, and we'll just walk our way through the remainder of 2 Peter 3. So after giving these two answers to respond to this scoffing spirit that has found its way into the church, Peter wants to emphasize that although there is in fact a delay in the coming of the Lord, Christians are to not be deceived about it. He desires that the church recognize the day of the Lord will certainly come. Look at verse 10, right? He's talked about these answers. Don't get caught up in the scoffing spirit. They're willfully and blindly um, overlooking things. And I don't want you to miss that this demonstrates God's character. However, the day of the Lord will come. Peter wants you to be certain of something. Even though it tarry, it will come. He wants you to not be deceived to this reality. He wants you to not be uh, mistaken or misunderstand. He wants you to look at this and say, it is as certain as anything. Even though there is a delay, even though it wait, there is a certain day where the Lord will come. Throughout the Old Testament scripture, the day of the Lord, this phrase, the day of the Lord, is a shorthand summary of the time when God would consummate all of his redemptive purposes. Now, in this, three things existed. Whenever, whenever you talk about the day of the Lord or the day of God, there are three realities that are being brought to their fullest expression in that. First, you see that the day of the Lord contains within it the judgment against unrighteousness. 
So there will be judgment against the wicked, against unrighteousness, against lawlessness in the day of the Lord, right? All throughout the Old Testament, one of the aspects of the day of God is there will be judgment against sin, full and final judgment against unrighteousness. The second thing that we see is that there is salvation for those who belong to God, for his people. He brings full and ultimate and complete salvation to them. And lastly, we see that there is a restored creation, right, where he establishes the kingdom of God over everything with peace and justice and righteousness for all. So in the New Testament, the day of the Lord becomes synonymous with the return of Jesus. Now, here's, here's something that you may or may not be familiar with or may not uh, uh, think about very often, but one of the difficulties with understanding the New Testament is that the New Testament takes what was one event in the Old Testament, right? And when they looked forward to the day of the Lord, and it separates it into two comings of Jesus, right? I want you to look with me at number three here. So at the first coming of Jesus, God fulfilled his purposes by making a way of salvation available to all who would call upon the Lord, right? So Jesus comes to the world. He lives a perfect life. He dies a sacrificial death. He's raised again as the first fruits of God's redemptive restoration of all creation. And then he ascends to the Father, building his church. And now the church is the holder of the message that God has made a way of salvation. That's called the gospel. Right, So when we, call, when we talk about the gospel, what we mean is it's shorthand for the message that God has made a way for people who were far off from him to be brought back into relationship and participate in what he is doing to bring redemption. That's the gospel. And you can bring nothing to that. You have nothing to offer. All you can do is throw yourself at his feet and believe that Jesus alone can save you. And you profess, you are the Lord, Jesus. Would you save me? And the scripture promises us that all who call upon him will be saved. And the church is the, the, the herald of that message to the world, that God is in Christ, bringing redemption and restoration. Number four, but at the second coming of Jesus, God will consummate all of his purposes. And in doing that, he will recreate the heavens and the earth. He will judge the wicked and ultimately, and when I mean ultimately, I mean fully and finally with resurrected bodies glorified in the presence of God forever, he will save those who are in Christ. Letter D, in reminding the church of the certainty of the coming of the day of the Lord, Peter's going, remember, this day will come. Though it's separated out in how God is accomplishing it, there is a certain day when God will fully consummate all of his redemptive purposes. Now, Peter wants us to be uh, to look at that day, and he uses two images 
that are going to then drive the remainder of the letter, which is essentially just three exhortations to walk in holiness, right? So he's going to give us two pictures of what the day of the Lord is like. The first we see is this picture of a thief coming in the night, right? Look at verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. So this first image that Peter uses, this analogy of the coming of the day of the Lord, is one that's really common in the New Testament. Jesus himself used it first. It's a picture that gives or speaks of the suddenness of Jesus' return. This image is intended to promote a sober watchfulness and a diligent faithfulness among God's people as we wait for his coming. Now, Jesus himself, again, was the first to use this portrait. And in telling this portrait, Jesus actually told his disciples that there was going to be a delay, right? Matthew 24, 48, write it down. I don't have it on the notes for you. Write it down and go look at it later. But he bakes into this story he's telling them. He says, when the master is delayed, servants respond differently. Some servants stay alert and awake, waiting for him to come. Some servants use the delay as a means to continue following their own unrighteous ways. Jesus tells us there is going to be a delay. And what the delay is designed to do is to expose what's real in the heart, right? The delay gives evidence to true faith and belief or uh, a desire to continue walking in our own way. But Jesus uses this image. Let's look at Matthew 24, 36. So Jesus, in speaking of the time between his comings, He says, there's concerning the day, meaning the day when he returns, and that hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. So then he goes on to talk about what that will be like, and he says, therefore, stay awake, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, there's the image, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, Paul also took this image and picked it up, right? First Thessalonians chapter 5 we have here. Concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you don't need to have anything written to you. Remember, we looked at Second Thessalonians last week, but Paul has told the Thessalonians all about these things in the three weeks he was with them. This was like Christianity 101 for Paul. Understand these realities. I don't need to tell you this again, but I'm going to for your reminder. Look at verse two. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now, I got to just say one thing, and this might get me in a lot of trouble. Um, This is not 
speaking about, and some of you will be like, I don't even know what you're talking about. That's okay. We can talk about it another time. This is not speaking about some rapture that is going to happen at some unknown time where God comes and takes the church to be with himself, to then deal with the earth. That's not what this is talking about. Uh, That was a popular interpretation for the last 50 plus years in American culture, in the American church. You know, you get like the Thief in the Night movie back in the 70s or the Left Behind, you know, craze in the 90s. I know a lot of guys who, uh, when they were growing up, if they walked in their house and their family was gone, they were terrified the rapture happened and they missed it. Um, If that's you, you can rest assured that's not what this is talking about. God doesn't have like an ordained day when he's going to steal the church away from the world. The church is going to be here until the day Jesus comes back. And the reason that this language is given is so that the church of Jesus does not get caught up in the deception and the wickedness and the unrighteousness that is going to continue to grow in this world until the day he comes. Here's, here's a proof for you. Go read Matthew 13 at a later time. Jesus tells a story about wheat and tares growing up together. The wheat and the tares are there until Jesus comes back. The wheat is the church. The tares, tares is unrighteousness. They both grow until the day Jesus comes. This image is not designed to get you to wait for some day when God's going to come and save us from the craziness of the world. This image is meant to strengthen us as we wait in the midst of a dark and fallen and broken world that is getting darker and darker and darker, that we would stay alert and awake, not getting carried away or caught up in the deception and the unrighteousness that abounds around us. And that's, we're going to get there with Peter here in a minute. Okay, if I just change your whole way of thinking, we could talk about it later. Number two. So the first he gives is this thief in the night. The second he gives is a purging fire. He says the day of the Lord is coming like a thief and it's coming like a fire that refines and exposes. Look at verse 10, the rest of it. When this day comes like a thief, the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So the second image that Peter uses is one of a refining fire. He declares that when the day of the Lord comes, the heavens will pass away, and the heavenly bodies and the works of the earth will be burned up. Because of this fire, Peter declares that the works of the earth will be exposed. And what he means is they're going to be shown for what they really are. They're going to be evaluated. And like a fire, you put it to uh, a precious metal to prove the quality of it, right? You heat up a metal really, really, really hot to show what's really in there. If there's imperfection in there, if there's dross, just like that, the fire of God's presence will will touch the works of this earth and expose them for what they are. The image is a refining fire that proves the quality of the metal by exposing impurities and imperfections. 
Look here at 1 Corinthians 3. This is the same image that Paul uses about the coming day when we'll stand face to face with Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. So the image he's using here is he says, every one of us, believers, every one of us is given a foundation that we could not lay on our own. That is Christ Jesus. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You can't attain to it. Nothing you did could accomplish this foundation being given to you as a gift. You have that foundation. But every one of us builds on that foundation with our lives, what we do with our time and our energy and our money and our resources and our thoughts and our speech. Every one of us builds on that foundation with Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each one, each one's work will become manifest. That's the same concept here as when Peter says exposed. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved only as though fire, as through fire. Okay, let me make some observations about this. Number one, Paul is talking to Christians. Okay? Let's just all take that in. Paul is talking to believers. You have this foundation. And there are things that you can do to build on this foundation with gold, silver, precious metals, or you can build with wood, hay, and stubble, straw. He's speaking to believers. This is not a ju- the judgment of like the great white throne in Revelation chapter 20, where some are sent to an eternal destruction uh, whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. This is an evaluation by Jesus of believers. That's what's happening here. Okay, that's observation number one. Number two, there are those who walk through this evaluation who will receive a reward. Look at verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, meaning the fire of Jesus's evaluation on our lives, if it survives, meaning it was gold, silver, precious metal, there's a reward. That's second observation. Third observation, there will be those who are saved with nothing beyond the foundation. Look at this here, verse 15. If anyone's work then is burned up, meaning the evaluation of Jesus touches the work, it was wood, hay, or stubble, and it burns, that person will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, only as though by fire. Here's the fourth thing I want to observe here. And this is going to be right where Peter takes us. This should make you ask the question, what is gold? What is silver? What is precious metal? 
I don't want to stand in Jesus' presence and the evaluation of the Lord Jesus Christ touches me and it was wood, hay, and stubble. My foundation's there. My foundation is secure. It cannot be taken. That is beautiful. And I also do not want to suffer loss. Both of those things can be true. Look at the top of page three. So this is exactly where Peter brings us for the rest of the chapter. He moves to give three exhortations to godly living in light of these images, right? The certain coming of the day of the Lord, the reality of it being like a thief and an exposing fire, he uses this as motivation for three stages of exhortation toward godly living. Look at letter C. Throughout the New Testament, there is an inseparable relationship between eschatology, which is just the study of the coming of the Lord and the last things, and the, and the reality of ethics, right? Eschatology in the, in the New Testament is not about speculation or, or conjecture. It's about fuel for holiness every time. And I've got uh, 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 loads of examples there for you. So the first exhortation that I want us to see here is in verses 11 to 13, Peter exhorts the church Since these things are going to happen, it is certain and sure that the day of the Lord is coming and it will come like a thief and it will be like a refining fire. Your first question should be, what type of person ought I be? What sort of people ought you be, Peter asks, He begins by drawing an ethical implication from the certainty of Christ's return and the radical nature of the coming judgment of all things. Since the heavens will be dissolved and the works of the earth will be tested by fire, the implication is that we ought to ask ourselves, how should we live? Right? How should we live? Right? If he's coming like a thief and the exhortation was, Watch, be ready, be, be alert, be alive. Don't ca- be caught up in lethargy and dullness and apathy. What does that mean, right? If you're coming like a refiner's fire and you will evaluate and expose every work done, then what does it mean to build on the foundation with things that will re- last? Let me just pause here. If these realities, right, if we talk about the coming of the Lord, if these realities do not alter, and when I say alter, I don't just mean tomorrow you, it, it's all different. What I mean is you don't begin to start having a conversation with the Lord about these places. If it doesn't alter why and maybe when, you get out of bed in the morning, what you watch, who you hang out with, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, if that is not altered, you do not believe this. You can say it all day long. If that does not affect 
your conversation with the Lord about how then should I live. You're like the man in James 1 who looks in the mirror and turns and forgets what you look like. That's what we're like if this does not touch our lives. If we just walk out of here and go, oh, that's a good sermon on the coming of the Lord. Isn't that great? We're like the person that looked in the mirror and forgets the second we turn away. This is what James means when he says, do not just be hearers of the word. Do not just be hearers of the word. The implication of this, God, if you are coming like a thief, if there is a day when the exposing fire of your judgment will evaluate my life, would you conform me to live in a manner that is pleasing to you? And if you don't know where to start in praying, take down right here, Colossians 1, verses 9 to 11. Literally read that and just start praying it to the Lord. He, it, it's, I pray that God would fill you with the knowledge of his will so that you would know with wisdom and spiritual understanding how to live in a manner pleasing to the Lord. That you would have strength to do that, right? Just literally write that on a card and start praying it for your life. God, in what I watch and how I spend my time and how I spend my money and who I hang out with, would you fill me with the knowledge of your will so that my life would be pleasing? I want gold, silver, precious metals. Everything that's wood, hay, or stubble, would you burn it now? Burn it now right? That's what the discipline of God is. It's his love for you that he will burn the things now that he's going to burn one day anyway. So that you can be conformed to his likeness and you might receive his holiness and partake of it. So how shall we live? Peter asks. And he just walks through a whole slew of things. He says we should live holy and godly. We should wait for the coming of the Lord, meaning we put our own, all our hope in it. All of our eggs are in the basket of the coming of the Lord. We look for it. We long for it. We wait for it. He says that through this kind of living, we hasten the coming of the Lord. And that seems kind of weird because you go, man, isn't there a day and an hour determined and, and how do we hasten the Lord? Well, it's the inverse. If, if God is patient and delays to give time to repent, when his people repent and call upon his name and live lives conformed to his image, would it not stand that no longer will he delay, he will hasten the coming? Right? He turns and moves toward us. You can see that below. Look at the top of page four. We begin to ask the question, what type of people ought we be in lives of holiness and godliness? This then leads to the next exhortation. Since we are waiting, look at verse 14. Beloved, since you are waiting for these things, since this is your hope and your, your, um, what you're longing for and what you're looking for, be diligent to be found without spot or blemish in peace. Since believers are waiting and watching for the coming of the Lord, 
in a spirit of humble obedience, they are to be diligent, to be found without spot or blemish. Again, Peter has exhorted the church, make every effort to pursue these things. Be diligent to confirm your calling in Christ. And he takes up the same word here to remind them of grace-empowered effort required to walking in obedience as a child of God. He encourages us to be found in Christ without spot or blemish. Now, the lack of belief in Christ's judgment had led the false teachers to promote a type of teaching that indulged passion and sensuality, right? And if you remember from chapter two, Peter had called these teachers blots and blemishes. And he's making a contrast here. He says, these people are blots and blemishes in your midst because they're using this casting off that the Lord is coming back as the means for them to pursue unrighteousness, to indulge their sensuality and their passion. You, beloved, be diligent to be found as those without spot and blemish. And what he means here is not that our labors in Christ make us without spot and blemish, right? We are given that as a gift. You can go read Ephesians chapter 1, right? He predestined those in Christ to be holy and blameless before him in love. He gave that to you. That's your destiny. That's what God designed for you. You seeking to submit your life to him and live up under his lordship only gives expression and demonstration to what he has done. It does not accomplish that. It gives evidence to that. And so he's calling us to be diligent to, in God's grace, come up under the lordship of Jesus. Look at the last exhortation. He moves yet again. He, he, he has this amazing digression on Paul, right? He says, Paul writes about these things as well. And the false teachers, they take Paul's letters and they distort them like they do all the other scriptures. Since false teachers twist the scriptures, pervert the scriptures, distort them, I want you, beloved, to take care to not be carried away. Take care to not be carried away. The final exhortation of the letter is for a call for the church to intentionally care not to be swept up in false teaching. Believers are given ample warning on the front end. Look at this here in verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, I'm telling you on the front end, this is what it's going to be like. Because of this, you ought not be surprised or knocked off course when it happens. The imagery is important, I think, because of the subtle and crafty nature of false teaching. False teaching in the church catches believers unaware because it sounds so similar to the truth. It catches believers off guard 
and carries them away because it sounds so similar to aspects of the truth, right? It uses biblical language or biblical ideals and highlights one at the expense of a lot of other ones, right? So a common one in our our moment is expanding the idea of the love of God or the acceptance of God without defining the exclusive boundaries through which you can experience the acceptance of God and the love of God, which is through faith, repentance, and submission to the Lord Jesus alone, right? The only way to experience the love of God and the acceptance of God is through the door. There's only one door, and he gets to define how, it, how you come through him. He doesn't just open it up to all, irregardless of how they come through. The message is open to all, but the way in is narrow. Okay? So, yeah, we want to go, yeah, God's loving, right? That sounds so good. God's so loving. God's so accepting. God is so all of these things. But it fails to talk about the lordship of Jesus the exclusive claims of Jesus related to salvation. It's only in his name that we are saved. It fails to remember that those who come up in by faith are now called to pick up their cross and walk in his way, submitting their lives in obedience to him. He doesn't just put a rubber stamp on everything you already wanted. He says, no, it's only my way, and that way will lead to life. But false teaching sounds really close, right? So there's this temptation to get carried away. Peter demonstrates that without a diligent and faithful watchfulness, the church is at risk to be carried away by such teaching. In other words, there's a risk that individuals or communities might be taken far down the stream of false teaching before they realize they've succumbed to it. Rather, Peter then exhorts the church to grow in two things. Now, I want you to notice a contrast here in this exhortation and in what Peter's done before. The language of carried away is very passive, right? It's like you're on a tube in a river, you're, you're at the lazy river later today in the 110 degree weather. You're just moving along, right? What does Peter exhort us toward? Diligence, growth, watching, waiting, hastening, pursuing holiness, right? Very active realities, very active realities, right? He, he juxtaposes these two realities. He says, hey, beloved, family, do not get swept up through passivity and, and just uh, getting carried away by the current of this false teaching and lose your stability. Rather than that, be diligent. Grow, pursue, be attentive this active uh, watchfulness that is required. 
And he exhorts them to grow in God's grace, and he exhorts them to grow in the knowledge of Jesus. Look at number five here. He says, grow in the grace of the Lord. This speaks of the empowering presence that Christians are given by the Holy Spirit through Christ alone. We are to cultivate a partnership with his empowering grace through the means that he has given us. Right? This is something that we are to cultivate in relationship with him, seeking to partner with his grace. And we are to grow in the knowledge of Christ. And he, I love how this is where he ends the letter, right? He ends it with this reality that your only stability is growing in communion with Jesus himself. At the heart of our stable foundation is communion with Christ himself. We are to grow in the knowledge of who he is, not merely intellectually, but relationally and experientially as we commune with him through his word, right? This is our life. This is what we've been called to. He saved us that we might live in communion with him, right? This is our only steadfast uh, stability in this world. The only way that we will not be swept off into destruction or lawlessness or deception is by knitting ourselves up tight to the refuge, the rock, the one who has saved us that we might be planted in him as a sure and steady foundation. Amen. Would you stand with me? Just as the team comes up, I just want to respond to the Lord together before we come to the table. We're just going to ask the Lord to speak to us this morning, to speak to us, to stir up belief in this among us by the Spirit, to speak to us about our lives, what type of people ought we be in lives of holiness and godliness. We are going, we're going to ask the Lord to let us grow in the knowledge of him and in his grace. So just as, as they're getting settled in, would you just stand before the Lord, maybe even present yourself to him? If it helps you to like open your hands before him, it doesn't do anything special. It just in your body postures yourself by saying, this is what my heart is like towards you right now, God. God, would you come in our midst? And would you speak in this room? God, we are your people. You have saved us. You have delivered us. You have called us. You have given us the spirit within us as a gift. We can hear your voice. Thank you that your, your word declares to us that we, we know the voice of the good shepherd. And so right now, good shepherd, would you even speak among us? Speak in this spiritual family right now. Would you speak to us about our lives? Would you put your finger upon places in our lives that are, are not pleasing to you? God, would you fill us with the knowledge of your will, with all wisdom, with all spiritual understanding? that we might live fully pleasing to you in this world.
God, we want to be a family that is marked by repentance, marked by the fear of the Lord, marked by lives that look for and long for and hasten the sure coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, would you not let us be just carried off in what is so normal to us in this world? God, by false teaching, by the cares of this life, by dissipation, by drunkenness, God, would you would you help us to stand firm on the foundation of Christ Jesus, growing in his grace, growing in knowledge of who he is, growing in communion with him? Oh God, would you keep us and protect us? I just want to pray the end of the letter of Jude over us. Jude is really similar to 2 Peter, speaks to so many of the same realities. I just want to pray this over our family as we come to the table this morning. Jude, Jude is exhorting his hearers to remember the same things, the prediction of the apostles, that they said there would be scoffers following their ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep us, God. Would you yourself keep us and would you enable us and strengthen us to stay in your love, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by flesh. Now to the one who is able to keep you from stumbling. God, you call us to keep ourselves in the love of God and then you exhort us to pray to you that you are the one that keeps us from stumbling. You, would you keep us from stumbling and present us as blameless before you, before the presence of the glory of God with great joy, to our only God, our Savior, through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Amen.